Prepare to be astonished. It's that time again. Let's get started. From the Clatsop County Historical Society, an adventure in history with Matt Burns and Alana Quila. You should never be allowed to talk to people. Some people without brains do an awful lot of talking. And now, with today's adventure, it's Mac and Alana. We're back, and it's a holiday weekend, everyone. So just in case you don't remember, the post office is closed tomorrow, as are the banks. Hospitals are not. Lots as of, they should not be. As they should not be. Um, Martin and, Luther King. I know. It's a great holiday to celebrate. We did a whole show on him. We did. Oh, yes. We should bring that back on our Facebook, our social media page. Oh, we should post Hot the Sip link. County Historical Society, yeah, so people yeah. can listen. You might need to send that to me. I'm, <laughs> I'm, to I'm, I'm a Luddite. You. I, don't, I don't know how to do these things. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, I can help you with that. But yeah, we did a whole show. It was kind of fun. It was things we didn't really know about him. Right, and then you were just reminding me of some of them, and I didn't remember either. So Yeah, because some of them are kind of tragic. Yes. But some of them, might like you make, you, you, it makes you like him even more. Well, sure, and I think a lot of it has to do with why he also became a pastor, right? Yes. Yep. Um, and then he was just so gifted at being that pastor and being a good writer. That An orator. He, correct, right? So he was this mm. uh, very effective leader. You know, he's somebody, just because I've seen the clips, I would have liked to have been in an audience and hear him. Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, it, it, you can sense it just from watching film clips and, and listening to audio clips, but to be there for somebody, I would yeah. have also liked to hear um, Lincoln speak. Yeah, and see, I... But there's, there's talk that he was kind of like a whisperer, and he was, he was like yeah. a little high-pitched, maybe. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, it happens. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, shall we get to, do we have anything we have to talk? We had a great guest last week. Do we need to talk about anything else though? No, we're doing good. Yes. Um, let's go. Let's okay. keep going. It's, in case people hadn't guessed, it's just you and me today. It is just, <laughs> I know, no Carly or anything. And you know, the little, if, the little ones are asking though, when they're going to come back. <laughs> they're addicted. And I said, when you find somebody to interview and come up with all the questions yourself. And I said, it has to have Ooh. some historical significance. So the assignment is out there. That's very, I would entertain that. that is very, they are five, uh, seven, and eight, so it <laughs> might take them a while. <laughs> maybe, maybe not as long as you'd think. That's true. I don't know. Because <laughs> that was one of the fun things, and we talked about it a few weeks ago, um, with the kindergarten cop being filmed at Astor Elementary School. The students, and they were elementary school kids, got to right. interview all the cast and crew. Oh, I know. Fascinating. And I, and I don't know, did we get into it with Tom or not about the, the vetting of those questions? They weren't written by the for the kids. I think the kids kind of... The kids wrote them, but he did yeah. say they picked like the top ones because oh. truly every kid had multiple questions. Yeah. And so a, they picked. And a lot of them were just, what does a blank do? Right. Whatever your job is on this mm-hmm. film. So they were kind of easy questions in that sense. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right. So um, things to celebrate tomorrow. Yep. And, and some of you might not be at work. So when you're hanging around the house and you don't know what to talk about. Here we go. Here we go. We've got it. 1605, these are January 16th, 1605, the groundbreaking novel Don Quixote is published, the first modern novel. See, I thought this was the highlight of the day. Do you really? I did. Why? Well, because I love to read books. Okay, well, so do I. And 1605, I mean, that is significant, how early that was. And it's, of course, it's the first known that they know of, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so yes. there could be certainly ones before. Wow, interesting. Okay, 1777, Vermont declares its independence from New York. Oh, way to go, Vermont. Way to go. Not, not, it didn't become a state. They right. said, we're not part of you Yorkers. That's what they used <laughs> to call them. And Ethan Allen was really big in this. Oh, okay. And there was a lot of violence between 
what is now Vermont and what is now New York. And yet they are, they still remain so different. They are very different states. I mean, right? <laughs> and that's part of why Vermont was like, nope, we don't want to be part of you. Right. And New York is like, no, you're part of us. And this goes back to like before we were the, the United States, when right. we were colon- colonies, there was much uh, violence and anger towards each other. In fact, when I, when I worked for the Ethan Allen Homestead, I was not born in New York, but I grew up in New York. And there was a lot of, wait, we've got a Yorker now here? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and before I got into it, I didn't really quite know that history. All right, uh, 1793, French king Louis XVI, or as I call him, XVI, <laughs> sentenced to death by the National Convention during the French Revolution. Ooh. Sentenced to death. Yeah. And I spared you. I was thinking Did today's you? topic oh, no. might be about the French Revolution and uh, the guillotine. Oh, uh. But I thought you wouldn't like spending 20 minutes talking about beheadings. Yeah, probably so. not. Nor would our audience at, you know, 830 at night on a Maybe. Sunday. <laughs> it was pretty gruesome, though. So that's why I decided not to. Uh, 1917, the Zimmerman telegram oh. is sent from Germany to Mexico, uh, stating in the event of the U.S. entering World War I on the Allied side that Mexico should invade the United States and that they would be given Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico if they did so to distract the United States from going over to Europe. By Germany. By Germany, yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, telegram was intercepted by British intelligence and partially deciphered by uh, the next day and its release in March shifts the U.S. public opinion in favor of war against Germany. Oh, probably. So it kind of backfired. Right. And there's a little bit of speculation. I don't think it's correct. But uh, a couple of, of uh, conspiracy-type historians have said that it was really not a legitimate telegram, that it was British oh. getting, you know, releasing right. this and saying, look, you know, they're trying, so you might as well come in on our side. I don't think so. I think it was a legitimate attempt by Germany to, you know, hey, Mexico, why don't you get in on this thing? Mexico's like, oh my goodness, we're a lot closer to them. <laughs> Mexico's <laughs> like, we don't want to get involved in this. God, please. <laughs> Uh, 1963, Los Angeles nightclub and music venue, The Whiskey A Go-Go, opens. Ooh, fun. It, do you know anything about this? I don't. See, it's like one of those clubs that are iconic for a lot of beginning music people. Like Elton John was oh. one of his early U- U.S. appearances. Okay. Uh, and there's a lot of different strange club or um, music groups and music performers that perform there in their early days. Oh, how fun. And it's one of those things I don't really know anything about the club, but I just know I've heard the name repeatedly. (laughs) Like, and then Jim Morrison met the keyboardist at Whiskey A Go-Go, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's not where the doors got together, but (laughs) it is like the type of thing that happened. And oddly enough, my nephew, it's not his career, but he has had a little boy band that he's been the drummer and keyboard for, I guess, for years. And one of like the guy who thinks it is a career said, let's go on tour, and they performed at Whiskey A Go-Go like oh, four months ago, or last exciting. summer or something, and, and when my sister was telling me, like, oh, so my son's at this place, this place, they're on this strange tour, they're in a van, and they actually performed at some place called the Whiskey A Go-Go, I was like, oh my gosh, really? <laughs> and it was like the most, suddenly I was Aww, impressed. And you gave her a little hope. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, no, she doesn't want him to do that. Oh. <laughs> and, <laughs> I don't know that he wants it to be a career. Oh, okay. Uh, 1970, four months after leading a coup against the monarchy... Uh, Muammar Gaddafi takes over rule of Libya. I wonder how that worked out for him. Oh, right. And how it worked out for Libya. Uh, 1970, Kurt Flood files a civil lawsuit challenging baseball's reserve clause. 
for non-baseball fans, you probably don't care, and that's okay, so I'll be really brief. But prior to this, you were owned by your team. Okay. And you had to accept what you got paid. You couldn't argue it, really. If they decided, we don't want you anymore, we're going to send you to some other city, you had to go. Hmm. And that's a little bit of the way back, the Black Sox scandal, that they couldn't try to get as much money as they wanted by going to another team. They were trapped. And Kurt Flood won. Wow. That this was basically like indentured servitude. Sure. And he won, and that became free agency. Okay. So that now if you were done with your contract, you could say, I'm free agent. I can work for anybody. Who wants me? And how much are you going to pay me? So it changes uh, professional sports completely. Right. It's not just baseball. Yeah. So 1970, Kurt Flood. Uh, 1979, the Shaw flees Iran. Oh. Leading to very bad things. Mm-hmm. 1991, the Persian War, Gulf War begins. Yeah. And that was the first day I was uh, my last semester of college and I was working for U.S. Senator John Hines in Pennsylvania. And that was my first day on the job. And all I did the entire from 8 a.m. until 5.30 or so was answer the phone. Oh, my goodness. And we had a big tally we all had to have near the phones for it or against it. And that was it. And everybody was calling saying, tell the senator to tell the president, go over and kick their butts. And then other people say, this is horrible. He needs to stop this right now. He needs to protest. Get to the president and tell him to stop. And we just say yes, no, all the way down, oh just tallies God. all day. And do you recall at least just what your tally was? Do you, I mean, what was was it one way or the other? Or it was a lot more pro. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that's interesting about that one, what this was the first um, live broadcast of a bombing of of a war starting. Wow. So it started at four thirty in the afternoon, Eastern Standard Time. Mm-hmm. So you, um, uh, first fire fighter aircraft launched. Um, and it was covered then back to back or, or wall to wall coverage. Mm-hmm. So it did change media from that point on as well. And how you would, or how people who got into journalism, so like me as well, sort of the opportunities that became available because of that. Um, so, so wait a minute, what time did you just say it started? It said Eastern, 4.30. Eastern Standard, e- e- 4.30 in the morning? or It says after. afternoon. Okay, then I must have started the next day. I have to go right. back and look at my notes. The next day, right. Well, because so, it was already happening. Okay. And I actually, I kept a journal. I almost thought about bringing it in and reading some some entries from it. Yeah, it said all evening through the next day. Okay, so um, it, was, it must have been the 17th then that I started my job. Yeah. <laughs> and it said officially at 7 p.m., Operation Desert Storm, the code name, mm-hmm. um, was formally announced. Wow. So. Okay, and this is the first Gulf War we're talking about. Correct. Yeah, in right. case people are like, wait a minute. Uh, but my history highlight of the day, okay. the thing I think had the most impact on history, and it was not Don Quixote. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, 1919, prohibition is oh. ratified by the states. You're right. Prohibition, that... it changes everything, and, um, and we'll discuss whether people drank more or less after prohibition, but certainly the growth of the mafia and all kinds of other things, organized crime. But what I, did I miss? Did I, I miss anything? You didn't, but I, I, I think there is a discussion here because, you know, I just read a, a new book that is not new by any means, but it was mm-hmm. Fahrenheit 451. Oh, sure. The Temperature at Which Books Burn. Yes. Um, it was a book recommended by my dad mm-hmm. to read, and I did. Um, so back to that 1605, you know, the creation of books truly mm-hmm. has changed the trajectory of a lot of decision-making um, and the way we keep records and how we learn things. Sure. So 
I don't know. So, would prohibition have been as successful if we didn't have the <laughs> the tools in place? Are we going to turn this into a history debate show? Oh, it could be. It could be. That would be fun. Yeah. See, I would, I would, I would entertain. Books are certainly important, and books are significant, one hundred percent, because I love books. Right. It's where but we get history. It's Don right? Quixote's publication. Right. Is where I would argue. Correct. I, I don't think that it's that. Mm. It's, it's just the, the fact that that is the first known publication mm. of a book. Yeah. See, I'm also, I mean, you got to go back to me, printing press, making books more easily to print right. and distribute in that way the common folk can have books. That's true. So, so. all right. Well, there's maybe a future show in here. <laughs> I think we need to like develop this as a segment. Okay. <laughs> we'll look into it, folks. <laughs> Point, counterpoint. Yes. <laughs> he said, she said. Okay, but prohibition. So yes. we're going to talk about some things that maybe you know, maybe you don't know. Okay. Um, so number one, prohibition had been tried before. Hmm. In the early 19th century, religious revivalists and early teetotaler groups like the American Temperance Society campaigned relentlessly against what they viewed as a nationwide scourge of drunkenness. The activists scored a major victory in 1851 when the Maine legislature... That's the state of Maine. Not Correct. <laughs> the Maine legislature passed a statewide prohibition on selling alcohol. A dozen other states soon instituted Maine laws of their own, only to repeal them a few years later after widespread opposition and riots from grog-loving citizens. <laughs> Kansas later instituted a separate ban in 1881. Uh, calls for a dry America continued into the 1910s when deep-pocketed and politically connected groups such as the Anti-Saloon League and the Women's Christian Temperance Union gained widespread support for anti-alcohol legislation on Capitol Hill. You know, the Flavel ladies, uh, Captain Flavel's wife, Mary and Nellie mm-hmm. and Katie, they like to uh, raise money for the temperance. Oh, okay. But I don't know which one of these groups they did. I'd have to, I did not research that and refresh my memory before coming in. Well, number two, World War I helped turn the favor in favor of prohibition. Prohibition was all but sealed by the time the United States entered World War I in 1917, but the conflict served as one of the last nails in the coffin of legalized alcohol. Dry advocates argued that the barley used in brewing beer could be made into bread to feed American soldiers and war-ravaged Europeans, and they succeeded in winning wartime bans on the strong drink. Anti-alcohol crusaders were often fueled by xenophobia, and the war allowed them to paint America's largely German brewing industry as a threat. We have German enemies in this country, too, one temperance politician argued. And the worst of all are German enemies, the most treacherous, the most menacing, are Pabst, Schlitz, Blatz, and Miller. <laughs> and we'll talk about them a little bit later. <laughs> okay. I like that. That's, that makes me laugh. It wasn't illegal to drink alcohol during Prohibition. I think we always forget that. I didn't realize it's to make it. It's, it's illegal to make it and sell oh, it, but not to drink it. Okay. The 18th Amendment only forbade the manufacture, sale, and transportation of intoxicating liquors, not their consumption. By law, any wine, beer, or spirits Americans had stashed away in January oh. of 1920 were theirs to keep and enjoy in the privacy of their homes. Of course. For most, this amounted to only a few bottles, but some affluent drinkers built cavernous wine cellars and even bought out whole liquor store inventories to ensure they had a healthy stockpile of legal hooch. 
Well, and then that's how prohibition worked too, right? Because you could just say, oh, this was in my stockpile. In theory. (laughs) Okay, number four. Some states refused to enforce prohibition. Along with creating an army of federal agents, the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act stipulated that individual states should enforce prohibition within their own borders. Governors resented the added strain on their public coffers, however, and many neglected to appropriate any money toward policing the alcohol ban. Maryland never even enacted an enforcement code and eventually earned a reputation as one of the most stubbornly anti-prohibition states in the Union. New York followed suit and repealed its measures in 1923, and other states grew increasingly lackadaisical as the decade wore on. National prohibition went into legal effect upward of six years ago, Maryland Senator William Cable Bruce told Congress in the mid-1920s, but it can truly be said that except to a highly qualified extent, it had never gone into practical effect at all. You know, I didn't think we'd have time, and I, I didn't print it out to bring it with me, but we have some great stories about the sheriff in Clatsop County in this time period kind of refusing not to enforce but he would get reports there's a still out in napa and he'd go out there and he'd get shot at and he was like i ain't going out there again (laughs) (laughs) and somebody else would say well wait we've got reports about you know down this street and he'd say nope i'm not going out there (laughs) at different locations they're kind of funny we should do a future show on on those because it's a pretty funny list of things yeah he's like it's not worth it uh, drug stores continued selling alcohol as medicine, mm. medicinal purposes only. The Falstead Act included a few interesting exceptions to the ban on distributing alcohol. Sacramental wine oh, was still permitted for religious purposes. The uh, number of questionable rabbis and priests <laughs> soon skyrocketed. And drug stores were allowed to sell medicinal whiskey to treat everything from toothaches to the flu. With a physician's prescription, patients, and I'm using that term very loosely, could legally buy a pint of hard liquor every 10 days. Oh, wow. This, uh, this pharmaceutical booze often came with seemingly laughable doctor's orders, such as take three ounces every hour for stimulant until stimulated. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Many speakeasies eventually operated under the guise of being pharmacies, and legitimate chains flourished. According to Prohibition historian uh, Daniel Okrent, windfalls from legal alcohol sales helped the drugstore chain Walgreens, I've wow. heard of them, grow from around 20 locations to more than 500 during the 1920s. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea. It's a speakeasy. That's all Walgreens is. It's a speakeasy. (laughs) All right. Uh, Next one, thousands died from drinking tainted liquor. Enterprising bootleggers produced millions of gallons of bathtub gin and uh, moonshine during Prohibition. This illicit hooch had a famously foul taste, and those desperate enough to drink it also ran the risk of being struck blind or even poisoned. The most deadly tinctures contained industrial alcohol originally made for use in fuels and medical supplies. The federal Mm -hmm. government had required companies to denature industrial alcohol to make it undrinkable as early as 1906. But during Prohibition, it ordered them to add quinine, methyl alcohol, and other toxic chemicals as a further deterrent. Coupled with the low-quality products on offer from bootleggers, this tainted booze may have killed more than 10,000 people before the repeal of the 18th Amendment. Ouch. Not to mention they a lot of them were made in, like, carburetors, yes. to, right? Like, I mean, in very unsanitary yes. conditions. The uh, Great Depression helped fuel calls for a repeal. Uh, by the late 1920s, Americans were spending more money than ever on black market booze. New York City boasted more than 30,000 speakeasies, and Detroit's alcohol trade was second only to the auto industry and its contribution to the local <laughs> economy. 
With the country bogged down by the Great Depression, anti-prohibition activists argued that potential savings in tax revenues from alcohol were too precious to ignore. The public agreed. After Franklin D. Roosevelt called for a repeal during the 1932 presidential campaign, and I truly believe that's one of the reasons he won, (laughs) uh, he won the election in a landslide. Prohibition was dead a year later when a majority of states ratified the 21st Amendment, repealing the 18th. In New Orleans, the decision was honored with 20 minutes of celebratory cannon fire. 20 minutes? Yeah. Holy moly. Roosevelt supposedly marked the occasion by downing a dirty martini. Cheers. (laughs) Um, Drinking decreased during Prohibition. Well, of course. Decreased, yeah. Decreased. The Roaring Twenties and the Prohibition era are often associated with unchecked use and abuse of alcohol, yet the statistics tell a different tale. According to a study conducted by MIT and Boston University economists in the early 1990s, alcohol consumption actually fell by as much as 70% during the early years of the Noble Experiment. The levels jumped significantly in the late 1920s as support for the law waned, but they remained 30% lower than their pre-Prohibition levels for several years after the passage of the 21st Amendment. So if you thought alcohol was evil, it actually kind of worked. Right. That it did decrease. Well, sure. I mean, I guess I was going to say because access went, went down, but maybe it didn't now that we're reading all of these other things. So it is, yeah. that is interesting, but interesting to note. prohibition does continue in some parts of the country to this day. Sure. Even after the repeal of prohibition, some states maintain a ban on alcohol within their own borders. Kansas and Oklahoma remained dry until 1948 and 1959, respectively, and Mississippi remained alcohol-free until 1966, a full 33 years after the Hmm. passage of the 21st Amendment. To this day, 10 states still contain counties where alcohol sales are prohibited outright. And I I worked briefly after college in southern Arkansas, L.A., I called it, lower Arkansas, (laughs) and a fellow co-worker of mine lived in a different county, and the county was dry. Hmm. There was no alcohol sales. You could have it and you could drink it, but you right. couldn't buy it anywhere. So he used to come over to my house to buy it from like my local store and then take it back to his, his apartment. How interesting. Yeah. I mean, but even now we have very strict regulation on alcohol, depending on what state you're in. I mean, Oregon, yeah. it seems, I just feel like we're still sort of antiquated too. You have to go to a liquor store, like yeah. it's a separate a state store. Run, isn't it? Like state That's operated? true, right? There are the state allocated licenses, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And then in New Mexico, there's like actually drive-through right. bars. Florida too. <laughs> Florida, you could drive through and get a bottle in a drive-through window, <laughs> closed container. Wow. Um, so yeah, I lived, and then I lived in Reno, Nevada too. So Nevada, like the list. liquors, like in all of the grocery stores and everything, it just <laughs> was kind of shocking. <laughs> uh, but I didn't ever buy any. See, I mean. It can happen, folks. Uh, Number 10, winemakers and brewers found creative ways to stay afloat. While many small distilleries and breweries continued to operate in secret during Prohibition, the rest had to either shut their doors or find new uses for their factories. Some produced near beer, legal brew that contained less than 0.5% alcohol. The lion's share of brewers kept the lights on by peddling malt syrup, a legally dubious extract that could be easily made into beer by adding water and yeast and allowing time for fermentation. Winemakers followed a similar route by selling chunks of grape concentrate called wine bricks. <laughs> wine bricks. You know, I'm uh, familiar with a, one of the breweries that survived by creating near beer. And some of their advertisements are so amazingly 
open about <laughs> it tastes just like beer. All you have to do is add some of your own alcohol. I mean, they're basically coming right out and saying, just add like turpentine or something to oh it and, and it'll be, be like beer. So some of the brewing companies that, uh, that weren't stopped by prohibition, let's talk about some of them. Yeah. Because I have a feeling it's like, if our local breweries suddenly had to deal with it, that they would all be creative and, and somehow survive. They would. Um, so the Brewers Association has a nifty chart showing the approximate number of breweries in the U.S. from 1873 to 2015. It's kind of a cool chart. You see a sharp decrease as the temperance movement picked up steam in the second half of the 19th century. And then in 1873, there were more than 4,000 breweries in the hmm. U.S. In 1888, only 15 years later, there were fewer than 2,000. So okay. it cuts in half. By 1910, there were about 1,500. The number plunges to zero from Ooh. 1920 to 1933. Despite this catastrophic decline, there actually were some brewing companies that made it through prohibition. Uh, not many survived, but a few had the foresight, finances, and good old-fashioned luck to keep the doors open. So here's some of them. All right. Pabst Brewing Company. Uh, to beat prohibition, Wisconsin's Pabst Brewing Company struck the word brewing from its name and started producing processed cheese spread called Pabst Et. <laughs> the brewery's ice cellars proved useful for the aging of the spread, which turned out to be highly popular in a state known for being a cheese powerhouse. The spread came in two types of packages, the basic round package, which kind of looked like a tobacco tin, and a two-pound economy <laughs> loaf. PBR's history page dryly observes that many customers likely enjoyed Pabst Et with beer, which was just as plentiful as Prohibition law was unpopular. In addition to cheese spread, Pabst Company made soft drinks and sold malt extract. Both of those products were widely manufactured and marketed by Prohibition-era breweries in an attempt to pull in extra cash. When the 21st Amendment repealed Prohibition in 1933, Pabst sold its cheese business to Kraft and went right back to brewing its famous Blue Ribbon beer. So Kraft cheese might be right. PBRs. Stepped, stepped right on in there. <laughs> Anheuser-Busch, the big guys. Anheuser-Busch thought the ice cream business was a cool option for surviving dry times. With its existing fleet of refrigerated beer trucks, Anheuser-Busch had no trouble keeping its new product from melting during transportation. That makes sense. Anheuser-Busch also experimented with soft drinks and non-alcoholic malt beverages. Thanks to the smart people at the wheel, the company boasted more than 25 totally legal products in its port, uh, prohibition portfolio. These included a malt beverage called Bevo, which Anheuser-Busch actually released before prohibition in anticipation of the alcohol ban. But what really delivered Anheuser-Busch was yeast. Quickly realizing people were breaking the law and brewing their own beer at home, the company started <laughs> selling raw products necessary for such activity. Yeast profits saved the company. That was the cash engine that was able to keep the company open. Interesting. So it's a make your own. Right. <laughs> Some assembly required at home. Uh, Coors. Adolf Coors, the founding father of the Adolf Coors Brewing and Manufacturing Company, was a savvy businessman who, like other Prohibition survivors, knew the value in diversification. From his earliest days in Golden, Colorado, Coors had his hands in a variety of business ventures and investments. His involvement with John Harold, who started the Harold Pottery and China Company, which specialized in art pottery and laboratory ceramics, would pay off in a big way for the Coors family. Harold left Golden in 1915. Adolf Coors Jr. took over the pottery company as a manager and renamed it its Coors Porcelain Company. As World War I raged, the demand for ceramic labware kept the Coors empire afloat during Prohibition. Coors Porcelain kept going strong after repeal and the resurgence of Coors Brewing. It continued to kick out high-quality chemical labware, spark plugs, dinnerware, recyclable aluminum cans, insulators, golf clubs, 
a little bit of everything, basically. The company exists in the 21st century as Coors Tech. It's amazing. I love that. Yeah. I had no idea. Miller Brewing Company. The uh, Miller is an interesting case study because although it played the usual prohibition tricks of changing its name and rolling out a bunch of legal non-alcoholic products, it still almost died. In response to prohibition, the company split itself into two branches, Miller Products Company and Miller High Life Company, and started pumping out the likes of Miller Special Brew, Verifying Lemon Soda, Tonic, Dry Ginger Ale, and Heart O' Barley Malt Syrup. But by 1925, it was foundering and nearly sank. The company was put up for sale at one point, and nobody bought it. <laughs> Smart investing by the company's law-abiding owners is the only reason it survived. Miller managed to scrape by on investment income uh, from the government's, from government securities, bonds, property management, mortgage loans, and real estate, and the rest is history. They survived. The rest is history. <laughs> so beer, wine, or hard liquor? Which one would you have missed the most? I'm okay. Yeah, water. Honestly, You're fine. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't really drink. There you go. I got turned off of it early as a kid. Yeah. Um, in my my friend's uh, treehouse when we were like 14, <laughs> we we mixed of all the stupid things, Coke with vodka. Oh my gosh. It was nasty, and it turned me off. I mean, I, I don't. I'm well, not good. a teetotaler. I still have a drink every now and then, but but probably not Coke and vodka. No, never. <laughs> all right. Good to know. <laughs> go make some history. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for joining us for An Adventure in History. An Adventure in History is created and produced by the Clatsop County Historical Society and brought to you by KMUN.